Hello there. Welcome to another episode of the Envision podcast. My name is Karthik and I will be your host for today's episode. On this podcast we bring together people from across the world who have a positive impact on the blind and visually impaired community and serve up those interesting conversations to you. With me today I have Victor Seran. Victor is a pioneer in many ways. He was the first blind and visually impaired person to work at Yahoo. He then went on to work at some of the hottest tech companies in Silicon Valley. You might have heard a few like PayPal, Google, where he went on to be involved in the very early days of web and mobile accessibility. Today in this episode we're going to be talking about his early days growing up in Ukraine to his early days working at Silicon Valley to his thoughts on what excites him most about the future. So without further ado I have Victor here. So welcome Victor. We're really happy to have you with us today. Hello Kartik and hello everyone. Thanks for having me. Uh, I hope we'll have a good conversation today. Oh yes for sure. I have a lot of uh, stuff to ask you uh, now that you know when you said you were coming on to the podcast I with uh, there've been questions that I've been wanting to talk about for quite some time so like, I'm super happy to dive into it. Sounds great. Thank you. Right. So we always start off the podcast with a bit of an origin story you know we try to see you know what kind of wh- where do our guests come from and how those uh, you know origin stories have shaped their lives uh, into where they are today right and uh, your life starts off in in ukraine and uh, can you tell us a bit about your very early days um, and you know and and also when you first came to realize your disability and how that affected your world view Yeah it's a long story so I'll try to make it short because you know we only have so much time. Uh, I was born in Ukraine as you pointed out and uh, as was common in many of the countries from this uh, from that part of the world and specifically Soviet Union uh, lots of kids with any kind of disability would be placed in uh, boarding schools or some kind of other secluded institutions. And so I was pretty much growing up and studying in one of those. Uh first I was studying in the east of Ukraine then when my parents moved to the west of Ukraine I moved with them to another boarding school. And one of the things to point out there is that you spent most of your childhood uh in those kinds of schools. So you end up learning the campus really well, you knew every teacher very well and every teacher knew you really well. And so up until you really had to graduate from the school the idea that you had any kind of disability especially if it wasn't a an apparent disability was very difficult to imagine so even though I'm completely blind uh, I was walking around the campus and our campus was pretty big without using any white cane whatsoever because I knew every corner of that school you know by the time you graduated which was about you know 10 or 11 years you knew every <laughs> i keep joking you knew every piece of dust on the ground uh, on the grounds of the school and so that kind of shaped um my feeling about my disability is that you know even though okay i knew there were some limitations because i had to use braille uh instead of print uh you know i had to communicate with teachers in somewhat different ways for example studying geometry by feeling the shapes and things like that so i knew of course I was not just like your other mainstream kids I had to study things in different ways but at the same time I also knew that it didn't prevent me to to study the same subjects uh that other kids in mainstream schools did so um and that's sort of how my you know child childhood really was spent is uh, the the just to finish off this particular section um the the um time you did start realizing that you were blind and you did have to adapt to the way society uh communicated uh with each other so the way people sort of talk to each other is when you actually left the school because at that point i quickly realized i couldn't lo- no longer get around without using white cane so if you can only imagine the first time i held white cane in my hands was when i was 17 and that was like a shock that it actually wait a second so i actually really have to learn um that there is world outside of the school and i had to learn how to use the white cane i had to learn how to find my way around and so on and so forth and that was really i would say it, it sounds a bit like a joke but that was a really an eye opening experience for me uh, to realize that there was a world out there 
So, so you know, in a way, you can say the white cane was your sort of first exposure to accessibility technology. You know, pretty much, yeah. It was the very first one, and then um, I got a scholarship to come and study to the United States. So before coming to the United States, I was studying philosophy at my uh, local university in Ukraine, the city of Lviv, L-V-I-V. And, uh, you know, most of the time I could just get away either by having friends read to me or by just passing the oral exams or perhaps typing something up in Braille and then just reading it to uh, my professors. But one of the classes I had to take uh, at the university was the computer science class. And because my professor couldn't really come up with anything interesting for me to learn or to say <laughs> to say to me, he basically said, well, you know what, I could probably um, teach you how to you know, play some very basic games on the computer. But as far as doing anything serious, any kind of programming, I don't think I have much to teach you because we simply don't have any computers that you could use. But after coming to the United States on a scholarship that I previously mentioned, uh, this is when I saw the computer for the first time and that really changed uh, my perception yet second time around that outside, besides white cane, there were other uh, technology available to me that would allow me to um, communicate with the outside world uh, with people who are not blind. That's really interesting because you know, I just want to back up a little bit. It's not often mm -hmm. that I get to meet people who work in technology, also have backgrounds in either liberal arts or philosophy or, or such, you know, uh, different backgrounds other than engineering. You know, most of the technologists I meet usually come from very hardcore engineering backgrounds. And I'm always interested to know how did philosophy actually go on to sort of shape some of the things or did philosophy or the stuff that you did back in Ukraine uh, really help you, you know, shape some of the technologies that you had a, a role in, in shaping, you know, like stuff like accessibility or screen readers. How did that actually, you know, flow into your work later on as a technologist? Yeah, that's a really great question. Uh, thanks for asking that because um, before philosophy, before I entered philosophy, which I'm going to tell you in about just in a few minutes, or maybe more seconds, a few seconds. Um, I was actually hoping to be a professional musician. In fact, um, uh, while being at school, I, I became one of the winners of the then largest uh, festival of music in Ukraine um, in the genre of uh, acoustic music. And so I really was kind of hoping to become a professional musician. I then went on to um, establish a jazz rock band and you know, uh, toured a little bit in Ukraine. And so really things were just looking as if I were becoming uh, a musician. But then uh, sort of reality hit and I started to realizing that, you know, even though music was really interesting, I probably wanted to get some profession. And because my father was um, studying philosophy at the time, it somehow just clicked uh, with me that it's a subject that also interested me because, uh, you know, philosophy makes you think a lot. It makes you analyze quite a bit. You know, I, I'm even today when I work with accessibility, I'm, I'm considering myself as I'm a very sort of pragmatic um, accessibility um, engineer or manager. And I think philosophy has a lot to do with this. It just made me uh, understand different sides, different points of view uh, that there isn't really right or wrong that sometimes you need to um, be able to identify the halfway solution. Sometimes you need to be able to compromise. And yeah, I think in large part, I, I believe, I feel the way I feel today is that I'm really thankful to my philosophy studies that it really shaped uh, the way I think, the way I analyze and the way I just look at life in general. Yeah, because, you know, I, the, this kind of reminds me of the story that I heard about Steve Jobs and taking the calligraphy class and how that sort of shaped, you know, fonts on the Mac. It's, it's, a, it's, it's somewhat of a similar route, uh, you know, I'd say where the work that you're doing, because when you look at things not, you know, in a not so black and white way, I think you start to find some interesting solutions because as engineers or technologists, it's either like a zero or a one for us, right? And, you know, having a bit exactly. of... Yeah, it rounds you out a little bit, I think. Yeah, and you know, music still, music even stays with me today. I also think music contributes 
to my appreciation, sort of aesthetic appreciation for accessibility, uh, but also it keeps me afloat, you know, when things get really frustrating sometimes, as, as I'm sure you, you know from your personal work on accessibility, you know, there are good days, but there are sometimes bad days. And I feel like music keeps me afloat, you know, when things get a little too heat up, I just go back to my guitar or my piano and emerge two hours later and I'm feeling so much refreshed, you know, it's like taking an aesthetic shower, you know. <laughs> so um, I, I feel that every experience I had in my life, it just made me a better person uh, or someone who just looks at life from different angles. Yeah, no, I think that definitely uh, brings more empathy into the work that we do. Um, so when you first came into the United States, uh, you know, from Ukraine, um, I'm sure that, you know, uh, you had so much uh, that was coming at you from so many different angles. Um, how did you cope with the campus life in the U.S. compared to, you know, life in Ukraine? And, uh, you know, and, and how did, you know, I, I think it, I, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I also think it might give, you know, it might have been a, a lot more freedom uh, for you here, you know, in the United States uh, and having exposure to all this technology, all of a sudden making a whole bunch of things accessible to you uh, that were not probably uh, the case in Ukraine. Um, how did you, you know, how did you really go with life in the, you know, in, 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 in the United States? And, um, you know, what do you take away or what did you start to experience that, you know, in the U.S. that you didn't, uh, you know, back in Ukraine? Yeah, so, you know, from, uh, um, from uh, the sort of learning experience point of view, it was the world upside down for me because, like I mentioned before, before coming to the United States, I could hardly type on a regular keyboard. Uh, a friend of mine back in Ukraine showed me how to use a typewriter, but I couldn't really use it efficiently because there was no spoken feedback. So I had to learn every key and how to type on it by memory, but I really couldn't read back what I wrote. So if I made a mistake and I didn't notice it, then you know I had to wait for someone to actually point it out to me. With the computer, when I came to the US and I saw for the first time that computers could talk, and this was, this was the early days of Grolier Encyclopedia and CompuServe, um, I just realized that there was this world waiting out there just to be touched, to be accessed. And not only that, the world could com communicate back with me through the speech synthesizer. I mean, that was so revolutionary, revolutional for me that to be honest with you, I think that particular year that I, I was studying here in the US at first mm, on a scholarship, I even stopped playing guitar for a few months. It was just so transformational. I just, I just got so um, entranced by all the experiences that I had. Um, in terms of freedom, uh, obviously there was a lot of um, new learnings just by meeting new people. And just, there was also something called culture shock where I had to try to understand a new culture. And, and American culture is in many ways different from, from the Eastern European culture. You know, I don't wanna get into details here, but suffice it to say there are enough differences that it takes you years before you can sort of feel yourself comfortable in another culture. And so I was no exception in that respect. So I had to sort of learn about accents, about you know, American history about some of the, um, you know, even the kinds of cartoons people grew up with, you know, I was not familiar with any of that stuff. You know, sports is still as a strange thing to me. I don't recognize most of the team names because I don't really follow sports. You know, whereas in the United States, I think every third or fourth person knows a thing or two about baseball or basketball, you know. And so, so when you start having small talk with people and you don't even... Um, sort of know much about all these common topics, it certainly makes you feel like an outsider. And so, yeah, I had to learn all of these things as I went. Uh, but in terms of access to information, as I mentioned before, this was a revolution in my head um, as to, you know, this is then what enabled me to go on and finish a complete computer science degree. And at that point, I didn't have to ask anybody for help. You know, I could just communicate with my professors by you know, sending homeworks through email or just uh, on floppy disks or whatever was necessary. 
to um, to do uh, my work at the university. So in that respect, it was nothing but a revolution. Interesting, you know, and um, you we, we do meet a lot of people in the show and generally I've met a lot of people in the community who constantly keep breaking barriers. Uh, but one thing that really, you know, is very different in your story is you came into the United States and you went on to get a job at Yahoo, right? Uh, you did your computer science degree, but I'm sure that applying uh, to Yahoo as uh, a visually impaired person was not a breeze, you know, I don't know, I think 15 years ago, I'm not, I'm not sure how long ago it was, but, uh, but I think, you know, all those years ago, you went out and you applied to a company like Yahoo. What was that process like? And, and um, you know, how did that, how did you go about, you know, applying to Yahoo? And what was, was, was there an, an, a particular role defined for accessibility? Or was that something that you pitched to them? Uh, what was that whole, how did you actually end up at Yahoo, you know, to start off with? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a long story, of course, but um just to fast forward from my university uh, here in the US when I, where I got my computer science degree, I then, uh, with my wife, we went on to teach in Southeast Asia for several years uh, on behalf of the Nippon Foundation. There was a program called uh, International Program uh, of Overbrook and the Nippon Foundation it was a joint venture. And so they sent us to do some teachings in Philippines and uh, Thailand and Vietnam, Cambodia. So this was an amazing experience in, in several ways. One that I actually learned uh, or yeah, I acquired some skills as to how to teach other, others about computers because a lot of the children or uh, teachers that were teaching there, they came from the provinces where computer was a new thing for them. And so our job was to train them so that when they went back to, uh, to their uh, schools, they could continue studying or teaching uh, computers to, um, to, to the students. Um, and that, that was an amazing experience because that later helped me when I joined Yahoo. And the way I joined Yahoo was, um, again, in some ways by accident. Um, I, a friend of mine sent me an email saying that he saw that Yahoo was advertising, looking for someone to start their accessibility program. And he said, do you know anyone who, um, who might be a good fit? And I just, for some reason, thought that maybe I would be a good fit. So I said, could you please connect me with that person? And that's how, it's how it started. Really, the only thing I can say about this, it was just me being curious and maybe adventurous, uh, is what really got me the job. Uh, I somehow didn't think about it twice. Uh, at that time, Yahoo was a big name. And so to even entertain the idea of working there was just like totally something that I couldn't have thought about even you know a year or two ago. And so when I came to Yahoo, there was already someone working on a contract doing accessibility, but I think there was no uh, program or the company really had very little experience in, in accessibility. Um, Yahoo, as many listeners may know, was an internet web pioneer. So the company really is associated with what we know internet today. Um, and so there were lots of really um, experienced web engineers, people who knew web in and out, uh, and they understood best practices really well. But I think what they really lacked is exposure to some of the users that they actually were trying to serve by building the websites and services. And I think in some ways I became that person for better or worse. Uh, the good thing about it was that now they had someone that they could actually point their finger to, to say, well, we know a blind guy who is using a screen reader. And if he can access our website, that means we're doing at least not as bad as we thought we were doing. The bad thing about it was that, um, you know, I was one guy, which of course I don't represent every user in the universe, every user with, with different assistive technology. And so this was my goal is to sort of start out very slowly by kind of, first of all, immersing people in my everyday computing experience. But once they got a taste of it, then kind of start building on, on that um, by exposing them to other users that there were other users who use screen readers in different ways they may be using different browsers, 
There may be users who are deaf um, or hard of hearing. There may be users who are not screen reader users, but they're using uh, other assistive technology like switch access and so on and so forth. And so I think slowly, slowly um, over the years, I was you know, together with other accessibility um, advocates at Yahoo were able to build that um, understanding um, in uh, employees at Yahoo, which uh, eventually led to the um, establishment of the accessibility program and accessibility lab. And um, the other thing I do wanna mention uh, that, connect, that is connected to my work at Yahoo is that I felt looking at back to, uh, from today, sort of from the height of today, I don't know if it's height, but anyway, from, from the, the timeline of today, looking at it, I think that I was also growing as an individual. It was my first corporate job ever. And so there were lots of things I had to learn about corporate politics, how to talk to other people, how to bring other people together um, around a certain cause. And so I really was learning as I went. And, um, and then later I was joined uh, by a person who is still a huge mentor to me, uh, Alan Brightman, who is uh, very well known in the disability uh, field. Uh, he became a manager at Yahoo and together with Alan, we were able then to build accessibility lab, um, accessibility team, and to do other cool things at Yahoo that enabled me later on then to go and um, lead accessibility teams at PayPal and later join Google. So in, in many ways, I think Yahoo was um, an experience that enabled me to grow, to learn, but also hopefully contribute to the field of accessibility at the same time. No, I mean, that's amazing hearing your story about how you flowered both as an individual and also started to, you know, get into the accessibility space. I'm really curious and, and maybe some of the more tech savvy listeners uh, amongst the audience are probably also curious. Could you talk about like one really cool thing uh, that you sort of built at Yahoo that, you know, was that contributed in some way to web accessibility or accessibility in general, like one cool thing that you can remember yes. from your time? Yeah, I, I Yes, I think one thing I, I'm, I'm really, really proud of is the um, in uh, around 2005 or 2006, there was a lot of conversations about dynamic HTML and how it has been changing the web for everyone, but we didn't really have very good accessibility solution for it. So screen readers didn't have a good way of communicating, communicating with dynamic websites. And there was no really standard way in which developers could develop to make such websites compatible with screen readers or other assistive technology. At the same time, uh, IBM and Mozilla and other folks were starting to work on, on the standard called ARIA. It was originally called uh, Dynamic HTML, but it was uh, renamed to ARIA, which stands for Advanced Rich Internet Applications. And um, a few people, uh, one of them is Todd Klutz, who is um, known in the accessibility development community um, as, as also one of these amazing engineers who, is, um, uh, who just embraced accessibility and did such amazing things with it. Um, uh, Todd Klutz and um, Hans Heelen, who uh, works at TPG, I believe today, uh, or Vispero, um, uh, and a few other engineers got together and we built the very first uh, uh, accessible, rich, um, dynamically rich uh, email client, which was then Yahoo Mail. Essentially, so what they've done, they've taken the Yahoo Mail as, as, as it existed back then, and they made it behave as a desktop application inside the browser. I think even today, you might still find references on Twitter, people mentioning that, that this is still remains to be one of the most stellar examples of um, how accessibility in the web browser, complex accessibility could be built if things go right. Um, and so I'm really proud of that experience. And the other one, of course, I wanna mention is our accessibility lab, which was profiled by you know, multiple media outlets and it sort of became in some ways an inspiration for other accessibility labs and at other companies. Uh, I would say those two things. There's of course, lots and lots to remember. I, I was at Yahoo for about seven years, seven years. So as you can imagine, a lot of things took place, but these two really stand uh, in my mind, snap in my mind as uh, great examples of what we're able to accomplish. 
Interesting. And I think, you know, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, you, you left Yahoo right around the whole mobile revolution taking off and then you, you get to Google and uh, um, after your, after PayPal, of course. So you get to Google, I think right around the time the whole mobile revolution is taking off and uh, you know what? How what was your sort of first exposure uh, to the mobile phone, uh, and and what kind of possibilities did you think of when you first held you know an Android smartphone in your hand, uh, and and how did you know the first mobile screen reader on Android come about? Talkback, and it's it's it has a huge huge influence um, on the in you know in the in in, uh, in with the whole tech world. It's it's really revolutionized a lot of things, um, and. So when you first held, you know, that Android phone at, at Google and, and when you were tasked with working on TalkBack, um, you know, how did that experience feel like, you know? Yeah, um, great question. Uh, because as you mentioned around that time, the web was, someone even pronounced the web is dead. I believe there was this uh, um, meme going in the internet, over uh, around internet, uh, someone said the web is dead because there was so much excitement about new mobile technology. And of course, I was no exception. My first uh, phone was the iPhone 3GS. In fact, I remember when Apple released it, I went into the Apple store and I tried it out and I just couldn't figure out how to use this thing. And I was like, I, I just don't get it. Something is not right because they keep saying that it's like the most accessible phone and, and yet uh, the phone with the touch screen because before iPhone, I had Nokia's and things like that. Um, but specifically to what you're uh, referring to. Uh, and then I went back and read the manual and I was like, oh, okay, it's as simple as that. So then since then I was sort of a con uh, convert. And when I joined Google, um, I spent the first uh, two years um, um, helping to build Google Plus and uh, Google Photos, making them accessible. But then I spent a few years on the TalkBack team. And that was really an amazing experience in itself. Um, building a screen reader um, because you know I've been using screen readers for um, most of my adult life but I never had an opportunity to actually build one um, not exactly but you did mention before a Ukrainian screen reader but that was many many years ago and that was really built by another developer and I sort of was helping them to you know gave them some consulting and things like that uh, but, you know, here was an opportunity to work on the actual screen reader that millions of, you know, blind users around the world were using. And that was, um, you know, came with a lot of responsibility uh, because, um, you know, you knew that every bug you created would affect, I knew that every bug we would create would affect me first and foremost as a user because I was using the screen reader myself. You know, at that time I switched to Android. And so it, you know, it became maybe it's sometimes even too close to your heart because you knew every bug meant someone's frustration. It, it converted into um, someone's unhappy experience, but you also equally knew that every new feature or everything we fixed, you know, would also make someone happy. And so um, being, I've never been in my life, I think that's so close to the user. And I think if there's one thing I remember from my days when working on TalkBack, is this excitement of being so close to the user that honestly speaking, not too many managers or software engineers get luxury of experience. And because especially in the big companies, you work so much uh, within bigger teams and bigger visions uh, that you know keeping very close to the user is really, really hard. But I think working on TalkBack team, I had this amazing firsthand uh, experience of communicating with users and sort of hearing them uh, on daily basis and sort of understanding, measuring the temperature of the community and understanding when things went wrong or when things went right. And I think this was the best experience I, I can quote for myself as from the days of working on TalkBack. You know, when you were when you were talking about how um, you know every bug uh, or every feature that was being fixed and how that really you know either changes and how that impacts you know the lives of the users, that's something that I I personally definitely feel it envisioned because uh, when we work on the app or the glasses and when there is a bug and that you know that bug is very critical to fix because you know it could mean that someone is not able to you know read a PDF or an image or you know with the glasses you know you these are things that you know you. 
or if you fix a feature, uh, there are like a ton of people who are genuinely happy that you know the issue has been fixed or that or something has been added. And I think the accessibility space is one space where, as a software developer or or, or as any maker of of a tool or a product, you really feel the highs and the lows. Uh, you know, very viscerally, and especially when you keep interacting more closely with the users. You know, absolutely. And I I think this is. Uh, to your point, uh, you know, for for people who don't have to rely on assistive technology, technology many times is is an optional thing, right? You could technically turn off your phone, and you could still get in your car and probably do many things. Uh, but you know, for someone with with a disability who has to rely on assistive technology, that minor bug that may seem like a small bug to someone who doesn't have to rely on that technology can be a you know, lost job. It can be a half day of frustration. It could be, I mean, it could be anything because to your point, that minor bug totally could uh, wreck someone's day, you know, or, or another opportunity. So, and you really feel it when you do work on assistive technology, you really feel it, you know, because uh, especially if you're yourself a user of that technology, you feel it even more, twice as much. Yeah, no, completely agree with you. And um, and and I think you know my my next question was was a bit related to screen readers because you know it is a very central piece of assistive technology, especially for blind and visually impaired people, and also people with a few other disabilities. And you've worked with screen readers. You've sort of seen the graph of screen readers right from the very early days uh, to you know what something like TalkBack is today. Um, I want to know what your thoughts are on the future of screen readers specifically, because, you know, we, we keep seeing touch screens everywhere. Like it, I think, you know, every other device that I come across uh, has a touch screen. And it, for me internally, I, I, I understand now that I'm in the accessibility space, the assistive technology space, that touch screens are not the most accessible things out there. Uh, and, and I don't know why more and more people think it's cooler to put touch screens on devices where, you know, buttons and tactile stuff makes absolute sense. Um, but, you know, leaving all that aside, I kind of want to touch upon what you think is, you know, the future of screen readers. Where do you see screen readers specifically as a technology evolving? Um, you know, great question. I, I have to quote uh, Alan Brightman that I mentioned before, who was my uh, working with me uh, at Yahoo on accessibility. I remember one time he said something really cool that stuck with me. If blind, if blind people were uh, to rule the world, you'd probably have to go to a special store to buy a computer monitor because there would be no need. Most people wouldn't be using it, right? And the reason I'm, I'm citing this is because, you know, being um, a smaller part of the mainstream population or at least perceived as such basically means that uh, in accessibility space, we generally have to almost, we're forced to follow where the mainstream technology goes. So your point about touch screens is an interesting one because if you ask a lot of elder people who have visual impaired, for example, visual impairment, many of them will actually tell you they would rather go back to their days where the phones had buttons because you could feel those buttons. It's not that they, can they cannot accomplish the, their job with touch screens, it's just so much harder for them. But because we live in a world where you know, there's mainstream culture that sort of leads technology and pushes things forward, we inevitably have to follow those trends. And so this is how we are today. We, you know, we're, um, you know, we're forced to interact with touch screens. And I think it's just the beginning. I really feel that there will be more and more of uh, sort of virtual interactions um, happening. Some of it probably is not going to be with the touch screen. And I think screen readers will have to figure out how to adapt to three-dimensional spaces, how to adapt to um, augment, augmented reality. Uh, and to be honest with you, um, we don't have all the right answers just yet. You know, we technology people um, who work on accessibility in the industry, we have these conversations, but no one really has complete answers yet. And part of the reason is that technology, um, such as I mentioned before, virtual reality, augmented reality, the technology itself is very young. So many changes can still happen. And so we don't really know until 
we see some of these things in reality. Um, some things though have become already clear is that what, for example, is happening with glasses, like the ones you guys are working on, is that sometimes you don't need advanced assistive technology to work with hardware devices, right? So some of the existing technology can already adopt, be adapted to uh, new solutions that are coming on market. If you think of watches, for example, the screen readers that run inside watches, they don't have to be so powerful as the ones we use on desktop. You know, they, they can be, they can have uh, very limited functionalities compared to, to desktop screen readers or even the ones that run on mobile phones. And yet with a watch on your hand or with glasses on your, um, on your face, you already feel so much more powerful than you did 10 years ago. So I guess all it is to say, my vision for, for the screen reader technology or just assistive technology in the future, it doesn't always have to uh, become better or more powerful, but it needs to figure out, or we who build that, that technology need to figure out how to adapt what we already have to the new hardware capabilities, to new machine learning capabilities. And I think maybe this is our next direction is really not to try to invent the next screen reader or the screen reader of the future, but try to figure out what do we do with technology we already have and, and rather rely on the new sensors, new wearables, new hardware that we have and build solutions that combine uh, what we have with new capabilities and sort of that enable the uh, person with disability live a more productive, more eventful life. That's, that's quite profound. And, you know, to say that, yeah, let's not try to keep thinking of, of new things that, you know, might not materialize, but look at ways of using existing technology a lot more efficiently, right? Um, that's, that's, yeah, I mean, just, in just a sort of, to, yeah, exactly. And just to add one more point, for example, um, uh, reading uh, OCR, right? Scanning this, the text. We don't need to improve the screen video for that. We just need to improve our uh, text scanning and text recognition algorithm which again, benefit mainstream, mainstream people as well. This is not quote unquote assistive technology in itself, but assistive technology can take advantage of these new uh, machine learning capabilities. And kind of that's what I was trying to uh, make a point about. Okay, interesting. And if, if I were to ask you in, in just a word or so, like what is, uh, apart from you know, the screen reader stuff that we discussed, what is the one, assistive tech or what what was what is the one sort of mainstream uh, technology that exists today that you think can have a big impact uh, on assistive tech in the in the coming future like what what you know from your experience being at the very forefront of this field yeah i'm personally excited about the new 3d 3d audio spatial audio and also really looking forward to um, and i don't i don't mean it to sort of uh, sweeten you up, so to speak. But I'm really looking forward to uh, amazing glasses that I could put on your face and they will do everything. Um, you know, I, I liked, because I'm an audio person sort of musician, um, I liked what Bose has done with their glasses, you know, in terms of audio. And I would love to have a similar device that is light, it looks stylish, uh, it responds, uh, it, it, it is smart, it lasts forever, so you don't have to change the battery, you know, every one, every two hours. But it enables me to basically see or enables me to interact with the world such that I don't feel um, in any way um, less, you know, less capable in terms of interaction with people around me and with objects around me. And I think that that is probably um, one big technology that I'm super looking forward to. And th that is totally what we're looking forward to as well. I mean, uh, all props to the Google Glass. I think it's an amazing piece of hardware uh, for the kind of capabilities that it that it provides and the software platform that it provides. But but I would definitely want to see like you know like a mainstream smart glasses uh, from Google or you know from some of the other companies uh, which incorporates you know the the 3D spatial audio stuff that Bose does with the amazing camera tech and the kind of processors that can run AI models and and that would just 
just be like the ultimate sort of ideal device for us. And I know it's, it's comes close to what you described as well. Um, and I think every conversation, I think no conversation would be complete, uh, you know, you know, uh, um, without having to talk about music, which you mentioned as a huge, um, you know, I would say influence in your life and, and something that helps you think through also many of the stuff that, you know, that you do. Um, you know, how did, how do you see accessibility and music sort of blending together, right? I think there are uh, lots of tools that, you know, as a musician that you might use uh, in your everyday life. And uh, how does accessibility or assistive technology play in, into the musical tools that you use? Um, and, and how do you see that evolving? Yeah, you know, that, that probably needs its own hour, one hour, but I think briefly, <laughs> yeah, um, I this is another f- area I really feel passionate about. I feel that, um, you know, a lot of the music software today is very much inaccessible to uh, especially blind people because there's a lot of like touch screen displays and a lot of it is like menus and um, a, a lot of the hardware because of the, you know, cost savings, um, procedures, uh, a lot of the hardware today, they try to simplify it. So removing all the buttons as many as possible so that, you know, it's it's slicker, it's easier to use for sighted people. But what really makes me a little bit uncomfortable uncomfortable is the fact that um, it's if, if, a, if a person with a disability cannot create independently, to me, it's as same as saying to someone, sorry, you cannot have a job because your assistive technology doesn't work with um, you know, with our particular uh, job environment, um, I I really feel um, very passionate about this space. Luckily, within the last few years, we had a few companies that stepped stepped up um, to to the game. Uh, Apple has made their flagship product Logic Pro fairly accessible. There are still you know lots of things, but we know that they're working actively on um, making Logic as accessible as possible. Pro Tools, which is the uh, the product from the company called Avid, uh, has invested a lot of efforts into um, accessibility. And the only reason all of these things are happening is because the blind community, community of sound engineers, uh, community of musicians, uh, visually impaired musicians stepped up and really made those companies rethink how they think about accessibility of art um, and Another area I want to mention is that some of the software engineers, some of the uh, blind uh, software engineers also dedicated a lot of their time to making music software accessible. So Jamie Ter, who is the one of the founders of, of NV Access, um, is leading now a project called Osara, O-S-A-R-A, which enables uh, Reaper digital workstation to work with screen readers. Jamie and I, uh, several years ago, we used to work together on a project called JSONer, which um, enabled people who were using JAWS, a screen reader, to use Capebox Sonar application, uh, which is which also was a uh, recording software for Windows. And so you can see it's a mix of uh, solutions here. Um, some were taken up by blind engineers themselves and trying to adapt existing APIs, existing interfaces to work with screen readers. And in other cases, uh, like Apple or Avid, you know, the companies were um, eventually able to realize that they also needed to step up the game and make their software accessible. But I still feel that a lot of the coolest gadgets today in music industry are still not accessible to um, uh, to uh, musicians with disabilities. And that really hurts a lot. Uh, I really do wish that art should be as accessible to us, to people with disabilities, as much as it is accessible to everybody else. And you know, the way it's easily proven, if you go to YouTube and you see any kind of demo today of any new hardware that gadget that came on the market, and you'll see someone will say like, oh, just click here, click here, click here, click here. And now we can put these two things together and suddenly you have a, you know, piece of music coming out of that, right? Um, it is not so much uh, so easy um, if you have to use a screen reader. One other company I do want to mention here in closing, and there is Native Instruments, who really uh, make made a breakthrough um, uh, achievement, make breakthrough solution with their uh, series of complete control keyboards, where they actually uh, are, they were able to provide spoken feedback for every knob 
that you touch, uh, that you use on, on this keyboard. And that really opened up the world for a lot of the blind keyboard uh, players to finally be able to access a lot of the software synthesizers. And yeah, finally we see that so much more creativity has been happening within these last few years because of that breakthrough. So uh, in short to say, things are looking up much better. They're now much better than they were like five or 10 years ago. But of course, there's always a place for improvement. And, you know, um, where do you think developers or product makers uh, should focus on to bring about further improvement, right? Like, you know, um, what would be, let's say, your one recommendation? Because I know that, you know, there are quite a few uh, developers or, or like, you know, people who are building products, listening to podcasts like, you know, like ours. Um, and I kind of want to understand, you know, what could developers do? Like, you know, what's the one thing that they could do to actually say improve their um, um uh, you know their knowledge about uh, accessibility uh, or or trying to think about how they can make their products more accessible um as a user yeah. of assistive tech and other general technology yourself you know sure um my one recommendation would be um i realize that you know, development and release timelines are always very tight and so you know, things are done usually last night before the release or, you know, something like that, especially if you're a small, tiny company trying to push a product out. But really, it's super important to leave some cycles in the development and release uh, timeline for reaching out and talking to actual users because um, it's less important to be compliant with some accessibility guideline or meet this or that standard than it is to be usable and meaningful to the end user, to, to your user audience. A good example, again, would be uh, um, native instruments, uh, complete, uh, complete control keyboards, is that they reached out to community, they listened to what people have to say. Uh, they didn't implement, of course, everything people were asking for, but at least they, they tried to be out there. They, they ask questions, what do you need? How can we do things better? And then you go back to the drawing board and you start thinking, how do we actually create accessible solutions? Uh, because, you know, running just of guidelines uh, might take much longer uh, time and you, know, might, might need, you might need to travel a much longer road to get to good accessible experience. Asking directly, users directly, might not only shorten the path, but it also, um, might help you understand what the actual needs are versus what the perceived needs are of the users. And so one advice, talk to users, reach out, don't, not in a reactive way, but in a proactive way. The users are there, they're on Twitter, they're on Facebook, they're on uh, Clubhouse, they're on Discord, they're everywhere. It's just a really matter of putting the question, uh, I'm looking for users who are building this or that product, uh, can you please reach back? We would like to talk to you. And I think that starts the conversation. No, I completely agree. And another thing as a developer of apps these last few years, uh, I've also realized that, you know, companies like Apple and Google are making it, you know, easier and easier, I think, each year for developers to incorporate, you know, accessibility solutions more easily into apps. And I think more developers should be looking into those aspects as well. Like, for example, how Apple does it with a Swift UI, you get a lot of uh, accessibility sort of for free in built a way. In. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, built in or or the way Google does it, uh, you know, nowadays, it it, it is you know, it, I don't think there is an excuse for developers to say, you know, it's, it's hard or, or it's not uh, easy to do anymore. Of course, you need to still talk. I still feel that there is a lot of design element that goes into it. There's a lot of talking to users, but for developers or product makers of at least software technology, I think it, uh, it, it is more easier today than maybe even three or four years ago when, when we at Envision started making, you know, the Envision app, uh, it, it's, it's come quite some way and you get a lot of things out of the box. Uh, and it just, you know, the, I think developers should just go a little bit uh, to be able to do, to, you know, to be able to add assistive uh, or accessibility stuff into the, into the things that they build. I agree. And, and every major company today provides a lot of resources. Uh, so honestly, it, it's sometimes it's just a search away, you know, you, you open up your browser, type some terms. And uh, I, 
today, I think you can find solution to pretty much any accessibility problem. Uh, there are, of course, more complicated ones, but in general, you know, Apple, Google, Microsoft, every big provider, um, you know, Mozilla Developer Network, there's a lot of amazing resources that are already out there with great examples to follow, you know, pieces of code, APIs, documentation. So absolutely agree with you that today, all, all that's really needed is understanding the needs and then going out, doing a bit of research and, and then just using um, as many available tools as you can so that you don't have to rebuild everything from scratch. Yeah, completely, as a developer. completely agree. Mm -hmm. um, so I just wanted to round off this conversation with a question that I ask all our guests before they, you know, they leave. Um, so Victor, to our listeners today, um, could you talk about like the one guiding principle in your life that has helped you get this far? Um, you know, so to say, you know, uh, to put it in a different way, I'd like to ask, you know, what is your mantra? You know, what's your guiding principle that's that's brought you out here? Um, because I think a lot of listeners definitely find your story inspiring. Um, you know, a lot of people who are listening to the podcast would, you know, definitely go ahead and look up your work uh, or probably would have heard of you. And I think they'd like to know what your guiding principle or mantra is, right? Yeah, so for me personally, uh... Again, you know, it's really difficult to have a recipe for everyone. For me, two things definitely worked in my life. One is being curious. I always keep joking that if there is a button, I always have, I, I just have this urge that I need to press it. And sometimes only then think what the consequences may, may be, but whatever I travel. So, so being curious is, is one principle that, that's been probably number one for me. Um, you know, don't shy away from trying things out. And Sometimes just take a risk, you know, because you never know. And then the second thing for me that worked, and that's more of a professional uh, principle, is being pragmatic about things. I try to not to idealize things, you know, I, I, and I know accessibility is very important to me personally. It's also important for our society. But I also understand that society is a very complex um, structure, a very complex organism, and we're all trying to make our dent here. And so accessibility to me uh, needs to compete with other things that society cares about, um, you know, such as, you know, environment and human rights and things like that. And so for me, being pragmatic about accessibility has helped me to stay afloat, at least in my professional career. So again, curiosity and pragmatism. No, I think they're they're actually really, really good guiding principles, no matter what kind of background someone comes from, curiosity and, and pragmatism. And with that, uh, we're rounding off our show today. So thank you so much for joining us, Victor. It was, it was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Kartik, for uh, inviting me. I really enjoyed talking to you as well. And uh, thank you to all our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Envision podcast. Uh, we'll definitely, you know, catch up with you guys with a new episode soon. And uh, until then, stay tuned and uh, have a great day.